good morning, church. My name is Gus Hernandez, and I'm one of the pastors here at Reality Church, and it is such a privilege to have you here worshiping with us. If this is maybe your first time here at the church, welcome. We so look forward to having the opportunity to get to know you better. Thank you for being here, and we want to connect with you after the service. And we want you to know this, that no matter where you are on your journey of faith, we want you to know that Reality Church is a safe place for you to explore the message and the teachings of Jesus. This is a safe space for you to explore your faith. And right now, we're in the middle of studying the Gospel of Matthew and getting to understand the life, the ministry, and the teachings of Jesus. And it is such a great opportunity for you to be joining with us. Last week, Pastor Carlos launched our new sermon series in Matthew called The God We Long For. The God that we long for. And throughout this series, over the next few weeks, we're going to come to understand that we as human beings are factories of desire. Meaning that inside every single one of us, we have these inner longings. We have these deep desires. And they span a wide variety of different things. We long for the aches of this world to be made right. We long for true meaning. We have a desire for significance. We have this longing for traumatic situations to be turned into triumphs. We long for friendship. We long for a good meal. Croquetas, anyone? Right? We long for satisfaction. We desire love, romance, passion. We have a strong longing for healing. We have a strong desire to see cancer cured. We have a desire for broken hearts to be restored. Most of all, we have a longing to know who we are, where we came from, and why we're here on this earth. And all of this longing gets us to really wrestle with one of the greatest questions. Is there a God? And can I know him? And I don't know where you are on this journey. I don't know where you are on this spectrum, but... I think we can all agree that inside all of us, there is a yearning, there is a desire, there is a deep longing to truly wrestle with those big questions. Why do I exist? Why am I here? What is the purpose and the significance of my life? Is there really a God, and can I know this God? You know, this inner longing can lead us on a quest to explore faith. There is an ancient theologian named Origen. And one of the things that compelled him about the message of Christianity is that it dealt specifically with life's three biggest questions. Origen, where do we come from? Meaning, purpose, why I'm here, and destiny. What comes next? What happens after I die? And as you are setting out on this journey to explore the message and the teachings of Jesus, I implore you to lean in and to explore what Jesus has to say about that inner longing that you feel deep down inside of your soul. And along that path, it will lead you to a word that you hear very often called faith. Now, faith is a word we hear quite a bit. Especially if you're in the church world, you hear faith tossed around all the time, but What is faith? Why is faith important? 
What role does faith play in this longing that I have for God? Well, today's passage in Matthew chapter 8 gives us a beautiful picture of what faith looks like. It shows us a beautiful picture of how faith is a demonstration of our longing and our trust in God. In short, this is how I would define faith. Faith is complete trust and confidence in someone or something. Many of you in here demonstrated faith the minute you walked into this auditorium and sat down. Because I, guess what? I didn't see a single person in here before you sat down, grab the swivel chair part and move it around and make sure it could support your weight. You walked right in, and what would you do? You sat down. You trusted that that seat was going to hold you. You placed faith, whether you knew it or not, in that chair. right? So it's trust or confidence in someone. But in Christianity, faith is ultimately believing, trusting, having confidence that Jesus is able to do what he said he would do. That is the core, that is the center of the message of Christianity. It is an expression that I trust that Jesus is able to do what he said he would do for me on my behalf. That is at the core of Christianity. And this morning, we're going to see an unlikely person demonstrate this desperate faith, longing for God, and placing his trust in Jesus, recognizing his authority, and Matthew 8 helps us understand why. Why did this Roman centurion do this? If you're taking notes, here's kind of a theme that we're going to see kind of emerge from the text. You can write this down. The reason he did this is because Jesus has the divine authority to heal and restore. There was something about Jesus and what he was doing in that area that made this person pursue Jesus and approach him with a very unusual request. And in this moment, we see Jesus is truly just amazed. Go back with me to Matthew chapter 8. Look at verse 5. So Jesus, we're coming off the healing of a leper in the first four verses of Matthew chapter 8 that we covered last week. And he's entering into Capernaum. Capernaum is a small town on the Sea of Galilee. It's a fishing village. Um, in Hebrew, in the area, they call it Kafarnaum, which is like the house of Nahum. This is Peter's hometown. A centurion comes to Jesus pleading with him. Look at verse 6. Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed in terrible agony. Verse 7 says, he said to him, am I to come and heal him? Other translations say Jesus says, I will come and heal him. Lord, the centurion replied, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Look at verse 10. This is very important. Hearing this, Jesus was amazed and said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with so great a faith. I tell you that many will come from the east and the west to share the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's amazing. Jesus only, this word amazed that's used in verse 10, it's only found two times in description to Jesus' reaction. This is one of those instances, the only time that word where Jesus was amazed or he marveled at something was his own rejection at his hometown. 
So it's interesting. You see, like, in one way, he's amazed that the people that knew him and saw him rejected him. And that this person who didn't grow up in the Jewish culture, the Jewish tradition, learning the Torah, anticipating the arrival of the Messiah, understands who he is and is pursuing him. Right? So he's amazed. He's marveling. This is very interesting. Look there at verse 14. After that, it says, Jesus went into Peter's house. And saw his mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. So he touched her hand, and the fever left her. Then she got up and began to serve him. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. He drove out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick, so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. He himself took our weaknesses, and he carried our diseases. What a powerful section in Matthew chapter 8. This text kind of gives us a glimpse of some unmatched faith and the unparalleled authority of Jesus. But let's start by looking at the centurion's desperate faith, longing for God. If you're taking notes, here's our first truth in the text. Jesus marvels at the centurion's faith. Jesus marvels at the centurion's faith. This encounter with the centurion and the healing of his servant can teach us a lot about faith. But for us to really fully appreciate what's taking place, it's important for us to kind of set the stage so that we understand what's taking place here in this encounter. First of all, the centurion was a Roman official. So he was part of the Roman army. Centurions back in that day, they probably would have had authority over a hundred soldiers, sometimes more depending on their context. But being a Roman he would have been considered as a Gentile. That's just a term for a non-Jew. The Jewish people would have looked at him and would have considered him as an outsider. He's not Jewish. He's not part of their tradition. He's not part of their culture. He is an outsider. That's the first thing you got to notice. The second thing is being part of the Roman army, they were the army that was occupying the land of Israel at that time. So not only would the Jews have considered him an outsider, they would have labeled him as an oppressor because you have a foreign nation occupying your territory you can imagine that people watching this encounter taking place in the in the town of Capernaum were curious to see how this was going to turn out you have an outsider you have a Gentile soldier approaching a Jew and making a request of Jesus and you can imagine all eyes are there looking how is this going to shake out what is going to happen in this encounter yet what is beautiful to notice is the posture of the centurion. As the centurion approaches Jesus, we notice some key details that show us his humility. Notice the first detail is that he refers to Jesus with a very powerful and unique title. He calls him Lord. Now, as we study the gospel of Matthew in its entirety, you will notice that the author Matthew, when he's writing these different encounters, he uses certain titles to help us understand key aspects of the story. When someone who is not a believer that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, when they approach Jesus in conversation, they call him rabbi or good teacher. So when they're starting a conversation or maybe sometimes you see some encounters where the Pharisees are trying to trick Jesus and get into this like theological debate, good teacher, rabbi, I got a question for you. But whenever Matthew fills in and shows that somebody addresses Jesus by the term Lord, is that they've come to an understanding where they recognize his true identity as the Son of God. This Gentile, who didn't grow up in the Jewish tradition, knew enough about the Messiah 
and had made the conclusion that Jesus is definitely the Messiah, that Jesus has to be the Son of God that the Jews have been anticipating for. And he comes up to him, and he humbly refers to him as Lord. Now, as a Roman soldier, by oath, he had to submit to the Lord Caesar of the Roman Empire, and he's addressing a Jew in the land that he's occupying as a soldier, and he's calling him Lord. That tells us a lot about his understanding of who Jesus is. And what it shows us is that longing for God requires humility on our part. Once we recognize who God is, it helps us understand who we are. I like to say it this way. A right view of God leads to a right view of self. And this Roman centurion, he had power. He had status. And he goes up to one of the people that he's overseeing militarily in that region, and he makes a humble request of that person. He had a right view of Jesus. And brothers and sisters, on your journey, as you're longing, as you're searching, I want to challenge you, longing for God requires humility. At some point in your journey, you have to come to the end of yourself and realize that you cannot save yourself, that there is more to life than what you can do. And you desperately need someone to intervene on your behalf. A right view of God leads to a right view of self. You know, what else is interesting here is Jesus was like, okay, I'll come to your house and heal your servant. And here again, you, rec- you, you recognize the humility and the posture. The Roman centurion says, no, 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 I- I'm not even worthy to have the king of kings enter into my house But I understand how authority works. You just say the word and I know my servant will be healed. And at that moment, Jesus is absolutely amazed. Just think about that. As a a soldier and as a commanding officer, he understands the importance of authority. He knows how to give orders and soldiers carry out the orders. And he takes that confidence and he places it on Jesus. And he says, I know you have the authority to heal my servant, even though he's in another location. And Jesus um, was amazed, and Jesus marveled at his faith. It demonstrated that he was relying on the full authority and the power of Jesus Christ. And we see that Jesus responds to this unmatched faith by healing the paralyzed servant. This interaction between between Jesus and the Gentiles shows us a lot. One thing that we can learn from this is that there's no class of people, there's no race of people that can claim to have a monopoly on faith. Jesus' healings were not solely confined to the people of Israel. Here, he moves from healing a Jewish leper in the first four verses of Matthew 8, and now, as he's traveling with other Jewish people, he's approached by an outsider, a Gentile. And Jesus was impressed by his faith, and Jesus granted him his request and healed the Gentile servant. Once again, kind of doing something very shocking to those around Jesus because so many of them had assumed that the Messiah was meant to be just a blessing for the people of Israel. And Jesus is showing them like, no, the gospel's coming to you, yes. The Messiah is coming to you, yes, but with implications to provide hope and salvation for the entire world. And here Jesus is showing us like, no, I came not just to reach the Jews, I will also bless and heal and care for and save the Gentiles. And that's good news for all of us. Because if you weren't born Jewish, there is hope in Jesus Christ. 
we have a Savior, we have a Messiah that comes to heal us. The other thing that we can see in this encounter is that faith pleases the Lord. This encounter with the centurion shows us this beautiful truth that the Lord tells us that it pleases him when we believe in him, when we place our faith in him, even though we cannot see it. There's this beautiful verse in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, and I want to draw your attention to the screen. This is what the word of the Lord says in Hebrews. It says, now without faith, it is impossible to please God. Since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I don't know where you are on your journey of following and longing after God, but I want you to understand this. It is impossible to please God without faith. If you want to draw close to God, if you want to get close to him, you want to yearn for him, you long for him, it requires faith. It requires trusting that he truly does exist. It requires believing that he wants to reward those who are genuinely, humbly seeking after him. God is real. And your soul is searching for something and he is inviting you to himself. And all it takes is faith, trust, confidence that Jesus Christ is able to do what he said he would do. That he alone can deal with the sin in your life and the punishment and penalties of that sin. That he alone can provide you with eternal life. That he alone can grant you entrance into the kingdom of God. Now you got to understand Jesus' words about Gentiles being part of the kingdom that we saw in verses 11 and 12. That would have been very shocking for the Jewish community to hear. After praising this Gentile soldier, Jesus then turns to the crowd around him and he gives them a strong rebuke. And he gives a strong challenge to the people of Israel that were born in this tradition, that have been hearing about this message their whole childhood. Look at verse 11 and 12. It says, truly I tell you that many will come from east and west to share at the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 12. Such a strong. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we see another powerful truth here, that entrance into the kingdom of God requires personal faith, not a family tradition. There were so many people who grew up in the Jewish community. They've been taught the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, their whole childhood. They would have gone to the synagogue. And yet when Jesus Christ, God himself, incarnate is among them proclaiming the message of the kingdom many of them were missing it completely and Jesus is providing a visible example of someone outside of their tradition who gets it who understands his identity who has stepped out in faith and placed all of his trust in Jesus and knows who he is and he's reminding the people entrance into the kingdom is not because of some family tradition and I want you to understand this it is not okay to be relying on your grandparents' faith, thinking that you're good with God just because your grandparents were religious. Your parents' faith is not good enough. Family tradition is not what Jesus is looking for. Jesus wants to know that you have a personal faith in him. It is not enough to just grow up in a system and think, I'm good because culturally our whole family is and fill in the label. No. Do you 
trust and believe in Jesus Christ, have you come to that spot where you know who he is and you recognize that you cannot save yourself and that you are reaching out, you're crying out, you're longing for God and you're saying, Jesus, I believe in you. There were many Jews that believed they were good and that they were in good standing just because they were born Jews. But Jesus here is giving them a very clear warning and a teaching saying many of you who think you have a spot at the future heavenly banquet are going to miss it entirely. Brothers and sisters, I don't know where you are, but I don't want you to miss that opportunity. To think that you're okay just because someone down the line in your family had a vibrant faith in Jesus Christ, that is not sufficient to save you. Jesus wants you to pursue him. I want to encourage you to move beyond family tradition and move toward a personal faith in Jesus Christ. You know, now that we've examined this exceptional faith of the centurion, let's move on to the second truth. And we're going to take a look at the object of his faith, which was in Jesus. And here's the second truth from our scripture today. Jesus demonstrates his divine authority. Jesus demonstrates his divine authority We continue the story, verse 13, then Jesus told the centurion, go as you have believed, let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that very moment. Look at verse 14. Jesus went into Peter's house, saw his mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. So he touched her hand and the fever left her. Then she got up and began to serve him. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. He drove out the spirits with a word and he healed all were sick. In just a short amount of verses, we see the divine authority of Jesus is on full display through all of these miraculous healings. Again, proving to all the people observing and watching, like this is a real historical moment. People in that entire town and village were seeing and witnesses of what Jesus was able to do, things that no one else had been able to do in their entire community. The first miracle of chapter 8 really kind of shows us the authority, and that's what we covered last week. Pastor Carlos did such an amazing job. Jesus did something so radical, and he healed someone with leprosy, a highly infectious, contagious disease that many people said, you cannot touch that person for fear that you will get what they have, and Jesus reaches out and touches a leper, fully showing everybody that he has full authority and power to be able to heal someone with one of the worst diseases in that day and age. And then here, he heals someone from a distance. He doesn't even go to the Roman centurion's house. He's like, okay, wow, you have so much faith that you can believe I can heal your servant without even physically being present. Go on your way. What you've requested has been done. He then shows off his divine authority by healing someone that he doesn't physically even have to touch. And then now he goes over, and again, I love this about Jesus, and he sees Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever And he reaches over, he touches her hand, and he heals her. You can imagine word starts to spread all throughout the community, and everyone starts bringing all the sick to him, and he starts to have compassion and heal, and he starts doing great and amazing things, fully putting his divine authority on display so that all of those there can see and catch a glimpse of who Jesus really is. What's impressive there is even just like how quickly verse 16 says, when evening came, they brought him many who were demon-possessed, and he drove out the spirits with a word. With a word. You know, back in the day, 
the Jewish tradition and faith, they had tried to come up with all these different things for trying to, you know, exercise the demon. And they had like these deep incantations that they had to memorize. They had these elaborate prayers and speeches. And one of their prayers calls for like the help of half of the angels that God had created to come down and help deliver someone from demon possession. And Jesus comes in and all he has to say is a word. And it showed everyone in that community, they knew this was real. They had seen evidence and examples of this. And to see someone just have to utter a word. And the evil spirits flee and that the demon possession was removed and that a person was restored and that a person was healed would have been absolutely amazing. Would have been so powerful to witness. And yet Jesus also does something culturally Shocking in that he then touches and heals a woman. And what I love about this is that it shows us Jesus cares for women. And he shows everyone around him that they too have a place in God's kingdom. Such a powerful and beautiful picture. The third truth, now that we've seen the divine authority of Jesus on display, we're going to take a look at how he is the fulfillment of a very important prophecy concerning the promised Messiah. Look at the third truth. Jesus intercedes for his people. Jesus intercedes for his people. Look there at our last verse, verse 17. So that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. He himself took our weaknesses and he carried our diseases. If you ever get a chance, we don't have time today, but I want to encourage you, go to Isaiah and read Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 has been known as the chapter describing God's suffering servant. It's a prophecy of the Messiah, the Savior, the anointed king of Israel that God was going to send to help restore his people. And this is one of the verses that Matthew chooses to draw his readers' attention to. You guys, you know what we just witnessed through everything these last few moments? It's a fulfillment of what Isaiah was talking about. So he's getting his readers to like make that connection. So for us, let's go ahead and make that connection. And here's what we have to wrestle with. In what ways does Jesus take our weaknesses and carry our diseases? Now, I've got to be honest with you. This quotation of Isaiah 53 in this text has caused a lot of theological debate throughout the years. As people have tried to wrestle with, well, what does that mean? Does that mean that just because you're a Christian, you'll never get sick and that part of coming to faith in Jesus is perfection and, and you never are ill and Brothers and sisters, I wish I could tell you that was true, but it's just not what we see in life, nor is it what we see in Scripture. And I'll just give you one example of why that can't be true. Well, you can't say that, well, if you just had enough faith, you'd be healed. The Apostle Paul. As you study the New Testament, you'll realize the Apostle Paul wrote half of the books that we have in the New Testament, was the greatest church planting missionary in the early church, and yet in one of his letters, he describes to a church he's writing to, something he describes as a thorn in the flesh, an ailment that he's had for years that he's pleaded with God, God, please, would you take this away and help make my life a little bit easier? And God doesn't take it away. In fact, God sends him a message, in your weakness, I am stronger. And he says, my grace is sufficient for you in the midst of your weakness and pain. And so how can we say that? No, to come to faith in Jesus means that you'll never have any illnesses. And if you are sick, it's because you don't have enough faith. That's not what this passage is teaching. That's not what the New Testament teaches. So what does this passage mean? A couple things. I think the context 
of this shows us that Christ bore our sickness. One, one example is that he, empath- he empathizes with us. He empathizes with our weaknesses. All throughout the Gospels, you see repeatedly Jesus is said to have healed because he had compassion on the people. It also says that he bore our sickness through his vicarious suffering for sin on the cross. You see, as you go back to Isaiah 53 and you study the context of Isaiah 53 on the vicarious suffering of the servant, he's pierced for our transgressions, he's crushed for our iniquities. In this view, Jesus' miracles and healings are a symbol of the greater victory to be won by the suffering servant. This is a beautiful prophecy of the final removal of both sin and disease in the future age to come. The gospel writer here is inserting this quotation of Isaiah 53 to help his readers make that connection. This is the suffering servant that we've been reading about. This is the Messiah that we've been longing for. This is him. He's here. He's among us. And he's giving us a glimpse of his authority and his power with all of this healing that he's doing. It shows us that he is able to do what he says he can do. We can trust him. We can have confidence in him. We can place our faith in him. The fact that Jesus was able to heal all these different things was proof that he was more than just a man, but was truly God in the flesh. And this quotation is helping connect those dots. Another thing that is powerful as you understand the Jewish tradition is that in Christ there no longer exist categories as being ritually pure and ritually impure. Like so much of that tradition was based on like, man, you're either clean or unclean. And different things that you did and different people you encountered with can make you clean or unclean. And Jesus is here to say like, no, when I come into the picture, when I rescue, when I redeem, when I restore, I get rid of that and I alone have the power, Jesus says, to make you clean. Only Jesus can give us right standing. I love this. He deliberately touched the leper He risked defilement. He cures this person who was considered unclean by the community. He then rewarded a Gentile who would have been outside of the Jewish boundaries for ethnic uncleanness. And then he heals Peter's mother-in-law, another taboo in that culture based on her gender. And Jesus goes and operates outside of all those man-made structures. And he shows that his power transcends them all. That he came to this world to offer hope for everyone and anyone. And that is powerful. I don't want you to miss this. This is truly amazing. The outcasts, those who are on the margins of society that the culture had deemed ritually unclean, were approached by a loving God who healed them and cleansed them. That is a beautiful picture of the love and compassion of Jesus Christ. Jesus has the authority to cleanse us and make us pure. He has the authority to cleanse us and make us pure. He alone can heal us and redeem us. He alone can give us right standing before God the Father. And he alone can grant us access into the kingdom of heaven. Brothers and sisters, if you feel like an outcast today, I want you to know Jesus is reaching out to you. If you feel like you're too far and you've done too bad of stuff, I want you to hear this. No one, and I want to say this, no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. 
No one is beyond the reach of his forgiveness and his love. And he's inviting you to come to him. He's inviting you to humble yourself and place your faith and trust in him. He is the solution your heart has been yearning for, has been searching for. His grace is sufficient for you. Don't miss this. Only Jesus can satisfy the inner longings of your soul. Nothing else that you self-medicate with will ever provide you with the ultimate satisfaction that only Jesus can provide. As we close, uh, I want you to realize that we are not oblivious to the brokenness that we see. In fact, I would say that it should draw us to want to long for God even more. The diseases and the brokenness in the world are such a constant reminder that we live in a fallen world. And it's so important for us to realize that in the midst of this brokenness, it's okay for us to desire for a day when the curse of sin will be lifted and reversed. We long to see a day when Jesus Christ will return and restore his creation. But let us take joy and hope knowing that Jesus has won the battle that will secure that future. There's a quote from this professor and theologian named Donald Hagner, and he said this, Disease is not the true enemy that must be overcome. That enemy is sin. For the fallen world produced by sin lies ultimately behind all the suffering and sickness of this age. This is the enemy to be conquered by the end of the story. And this is what Jesus comes to usher in. True, beautiful restoration that's only made possible through him. As we fervently wait on the Lord, he sees us in the midst of our pain and brokenness. And I know a lot of you in here are going through a lot of pain and brokenness. Even in my family, we, we've just recently had some tough news that's hard to process. And in those moments, we have a decision to make. We can either fall into a trap where we run away from God or we can turn to him, even though we may not understand all the circumstances and details about what we're going through. And we can cry out to God and say, God, I trust you. God, I believe you. God, I know that you have the power and the authority to make things right. God, I know you can rescue me. And that longing for God requires humility on our part to seek him and trust him. But what's the end result? Why do we follow and place our faith in Jesus? Why should we trust him? And I want to draw your attention to a verse where Peter, the apostle, who was part of one of the characters in the story, his mother-in-law was healed, he witnesses this healing. Later on, as the church gets started after the resurrection of Jesus, Peter writes a letter to a group of Christians, and he writes this encouragement to now believers spread out who didn't physically witness some of Jesus' healings. Right? So now there's people who've come and placed their faith in Jesus but didn't see him. Look at what it says, 1 Peter chapter 1, 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him. And you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Brothers and sisters, we don't physically see Jesus today like this first generation of believers had the privilege of seeing, and yet we have heard the message. 
It's been preserved from generation to generation to generation. It's been passed on and passed on so that those who saw these things were so transformed by Jesus that they shared it with someone else. And 2,000 years later, we're here in a theater in Miami, Florida, and we're proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ because he was real and he did something that truly impacted the world. And what is the purpose? Why is Jesus worth longing for? Because it is the only thing that can lead to the salvation of your soul. The only solution to that deep inner longing that you know you have, it can only find rest in Jesus Christ. Jesus is worth longing for. As we close in prayer, I want to call the band up. Um, and I want to invite you guys to close your eyes and bow your heads as we wrap up in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you sent your son Jesus Christ into this world to be born a man, to suffer and to die as one of us, yet to be different in that he was sinlessly perfect. He empathized with our weaknesses and on the cross he took on the full penalty and payment of our sin. He took on your wrath, God. And in turn, he offers us forgiveness. He offers us eternal life. For anyone who repents of their sin and humbly places their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. That is the good news. That is what we have been called to embrace. And that is what we have been called to proclaim around the world. God, I want to pray for those who are here today. There's someone who has been searching, who's been yearning, trying to figure out why am I here? Why do I exist? Is this all there is to life? What comes next? Lord, I pray that you would reach out to them. Would you tug their heart and would you lead them to yourself? Would you grant them repentance and faith? Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to seek after God because Jesus is worth longing. We pray this in his powerful name. Amen.